Hello and welcome to another episode of the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and I am your host. Today, as we dive into another episode of this series on technocracy using uh, fairly famous historic writings and books and whatnots as allusions to better understand what technocracy is and how it is manifesting itself now as well as what it will likely manifest as in the relatively near future. So that's what we're doing if you are new at least go back to the beginning of this series ideally at least the beginning of the season or even more ideal go back to the very beginning but if you are current and know what you're doing here then please continue to listen and i hope that you enjoy in the previous few episodes i've covered a first view of technocracy a more material physical version of technocracy and i used Machiavelli's The Prince, Orwell's 1984, and Jeremy Bentham's The Panopticon Writings as examples of what this looks like, some of the concepts and strategies that exist, some of the methods that are employed, these types of things. And I've been giving examples, especially with big tech, as far as how these things are actively occurring in our current time. This type of technocracy is in some stage in existence today. I would guess probably an early stage, but I really don't know. None of us really know. But we are somewhere in this range of illusions and things that are going on. But we are going to head into something that is a little different, an evolution of what exists today. Things evolve, things change, history is not static. And so what we want to do is be able to differentiate the two as well as be able to identify some of the bridges in between so that we can better understand the world we live in and better make use of our time, our finances, all of these things as we live in this world and try to achieve the various goals that we all have. So with this episode, I would like to talk about this bridge in between these two uh, versions and manifestations of technocracy. So like I said, I would argue that we are already in this first stage in some way. We see that politicians and state agencies are largely expected to be Machiavellian, and they attempt to manipulate the public to get what they want, whether it be re-election, contracts, regulations, or any other object that suits their desires, just like Machiavelli says that they should. We already have a 1984-esque control and surveillance grid that's already in place, with the public largely willingly participating and also paying for and installing the physical devices needed to run this surveillance grid. They're doing it themselves. People are buying these cameras. They are inputting their data. They're using these services. They are building the technocracy themselves and funding it, which is very interesting. The propaganda is so effective that a false flag event can spur the public to demand war and sacrifice thousands of lives 
over a hyped-up lie. And again, this is 1984. That was the main mechanism that they used, is the fear of war. And sometimes they would even let rockets come in and blow up in order to make sure that the citizens were scared, that they knew that this war was a real thing, and they would therefore completely support defending their country and defending the party and these types of things. So we see examples of this in something like the Gulf of Tonkin incident. That was something that brought American ground troops into Vietnam, and it turned out that it was a lie, basically a CIA operation, and they lied about being attacked in order to have an excuse to send more ground troops and get more involved. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution had already been written, and they just needed the catalyzing event that would encourage Americans to be on board because they were not very supportive of possibly getting involved there. Another example could be the uh, issue of babies thrown from incubators, which was a story that gave the excuse for the war in Kuwait. And it turned out that the woman who made this claim was, I believe, the daughter of the ambassador with very strong ties towards wanting us to come in and get involved. And it turned out that, so far as anyone knows, this was not a real thing. And yet, it was plastered all over the news, propaganda was crazy, and there was full support to go into Kuwait. You also have the example of uh, the claim that we had to invade sovereign countries in the Middle East to get Osama bin Laden, even though there was an offer on the table to turn him over to a neutral country for trial if the U.S. would stop bombing Afghanistan. But according to the media and the propaganda, this isn't something that uh, for some reason was desired, and mainly because it didn't get any coverage and people didn't really know anything about it. They thought that we did have to go invade. And not only that, they felt like retribution and justice and revenge was uh, called for and that we should employ these things. And they were hyped up uh, to support this war machine and get involved. There was all of this patriotic fervor that was stirred up after 9-11, and there's 9-11, whole nother rabbit trail to get down related to propaganda and starting war and all that stuff. The final example that I could use would be the accusation that Assad used chemical weapons in Duma to kill his own people, and that this was a horrible chemical weapons attack. This was when Trump first got elected, and it was the one time that the media on the left actually said that he was being presidential and kind of almost gave him some compliments, was when he bombed Syria for this. And it turned out that Assad didn't use chemical weapons, that the video footage was either fake or was showing something totally different, that the canisters had come from somewhere that was different than what they had claimed, that there was no true residue that would show the existence of, I believe it was chlorine gas was what they were saying was used. Then basically it was all a false flag. And yet we bombed a foreign country and killed a bunch of people, including innocent civilians. 
And the American people were totally on board with it. Heck, they watched it on the news. They watched these bombs fall and blow up. This is ridiculous. This is 1984, though. This is what the technocracy does. This is how effective it is. These are just a few examples out of many where the use of propaganda by the state clearly and effectively steered the masses to a desired goal. Since the public expects the government to be able to spy on them, to track them, to know when they are breaking the law, this current panopticon already produces the effect of a mostly self-governing citizenry. This is, again, the idea of the panopticon, and the surveillance grid is a mix of that and 1984, like I was saying, currently exists, and we see And if you add in a bit of propaganda to stir up divisiveness, to raise and crash easily debunkable conspiracy theories, and you pitch groups and ideologies against each other, and the whole public is ripe for or already steeped in this form of technocracy, this is what you create, and this is what has been created through these methods and these strategies. Now, with all of that, I think that gives a good rough overview of a more macro view of the past few episodes. And so that's showing how we are currently in this version of technocracy. It already exists. We live in it today. Now, philosophically, you could look at this from a perspective that I have touched on in previous episodes. This would be from Deleuze. And he talks about an arborescent versus a rhizomatic approach to things. And from a conceptual point of view, this is the idea of something being more tree-like or maybe something being more fungal-like or root-like. And so the difference would be that, well, I guess I'll just stick with the first, the arborescent. And we'll get to rhizomatic after we get into the next set of illusions, because that's what those are. So with the arborescent view of things, with that perspective, this is talking about a structure that is similar to a tree. The tree is something that you can see. You can visually see this tree. Not only can you visually see this tree, you can differentiate the different parts of the tree. You have the trunk, you have the branches, you have the leaves. And all of these different parts of the tree have a very specific function. They have a reason for being. We can identify what that reason is. We can see how they act and interact with each other. This is something that is uh, fairly easy to see. It is fairly straightforward. It is fairly structured. It is fairly hierarchical. It is a more material thing. This is the type of system that is being described by this term arborescent. And hopefully you can see those overlaps of how the version of technocracy that I've been discussing fits with what this is. There is a clear hierarchy where each layer imposes its desires on the next, just like with a tree. There is a clear, uh, you could say, hierarchy where nutrients are brought up from the roots, they're brought through the trunk, they're brought out from the branches, they're put into the leaves. The leaves are also bringing in sunlight, doing their own thing and bringing that back into the tree. There is this cycle and things are stacked on another, on one another. They are helping each other. They are building on the thing before it, all of these types of things. Everything has its place and its function and can be identified and understood individually. This is the parts of the tree. This is the state. It is visible and it follows set systems. 
this is the current technocracy, so to say. And again, currently, the technocracy is kind of this blend of, let's say, big tech and the state. The state has been implementing technocracy for some years now. And again, I have talked about that in the past, even in season one, talked about at least a lot of those topics and concepts and how the state is doing these things things. And it's only been recently since the internet and the rise of big tech and these types of things that the technocracy is shifting more into the corporate world, more into this form of technocracy. And uh, I believe, at least, that this is part of the shift into a different version. Now, as we talk about uh, the arborescent view of technocracy and what it has uh, historically been, at least in modern history, and what we see today, and we're starting to bridge this into another version, uh, for a connecting bridge for these, you could look at 1984. There's a lot of discussion about Newspeak, and this is a new version of the language that is highly simplified And it's managed such that when it is completed sometime in the future, no rebellion on any level will even be possible. At least this is what they believe. There will simply be no words to describe subversive thought. They won't exist. How can one think subversively without the language and accompanying understanding of these concepts? There will be no word for rebel or anarchy, or freedom, or liberty, or the like. Or if there are parallel words, the concepts they represent will be void of the meaning and connotation associated with them in old speak. So even if there is a word for freedom, what freedom means and how people will conceptualize that will be totally different than what we believe today. It's this whole idea of freedom is slavery, war is peace, and ignorance is strength. This is the motto of the party. I actually forgot to talk about that when I did the episode on 1984, but uh, this is their motto. War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. And Number one, you can see how that relates to this idea of newspeak, where if you conceptualize what war is, the first thing that people think of is peace and safety and security. This is something that's been promoted a lot in modern history. That's the whole idea of the invasion of the Middle East and the wars that possibly we just got out of. This is what it was. It was this war that had the intentions of bringing peace and security and safety. That was its purpose, at least according to many people. This idea of freedom is slavery. It's it's this thing where if you are on your own and if you have to completely take care of yourself, then you are a slave to those things that you have to do because you don't have the help of the state. You don't have that safety net of the state. Freedom is something that is not beneficial to you. It's not a good thing. Freedom is slavery. And so instead, wouldn't you much prefer to be in the hands of the loving state, of the party who will take care of you, who will make sure that you have all your needs, who will do all the things on a macro level that society needs done? If you have total freedom, then it's total anarchy, which is total slavery, at least in 1984. 
conceptualization. Now, the final part is ignorance is strength. This is something that has really been pushed post-COVID. There have been multiple articles written about how it is dangerous for an individual to do a lot of their own research on the internet because they they might get infected with misinformation. So instead of trying to research topics and learn about things and discover information on your own, maybe look at some data and statistics and these types of things, instead of doing that, what you should do is just trust the experts. Because if you are ignorant of all of the information, then that is actually a strength because the experts will tell you the information that you need to know. And it's much safer to just be ignorant of the rest. It leaves you in a much stronger position to be a good citizen, to be a good person, to uh, be mentally fortified, these types of things. And so that's the idea of ignorance is strength, which is 1984, which is today. These are the things that are happening. Now, as of the time frame that 1984 covers within Orwell's book, Newspeak is in its relative infancy, and therefore the full-fledged concept and application doesn't exist yet in that timeline, or in my correlative example of early technocratic governance, but when Newspeak is fully rolled out, the concept and strategy would be much more in line with the next phase of the shift to full technocracy. This is something that brings it into a realm that is different. It totally changes the game. So, as Newspeak is being introduced, this is being done by the first, more material version of the technocracy. It's controlling information. It's controlling how people think. And if you look at what big tech does, the studies that Facebook and Google have done about people's emotions and their thoughts and predicting their behaviors, these types of things, advertising, uh, mass psychosis that has happened, all of these things. It's all about controlling what people think, what they can think, what they will think, pushing them to think certain things. This is what it is doing. And at the same time, it is creating this physical presence, this uh, physical panopticon that keeps them under control and pushes them towards certain behaviors. Uh, this is what's going on. This is the first technocracy. But as you get the evolution and Newspeak becomes the main language, you get something different. What if the majority of times that you are talking to somebody, they are using words that uh, they're using them in a way that means something totally different than what you know them as. And they just don't know the words that you say when you're talking about things like liberty and uh, anarchy and the freedom, these types of things, they just don't exist. And when you get to that level, when you get to a level where you have full censorship, full control over the internet, a completely regulated internet where they can control all of the information that you see, all of the information you hear, all of the information you read, when they break down the family unit such that either families are completely loyal to society, the state, whatever, 
or they are just broken apart where they're not going to heavily influence each other against the state or society. When you get to these points, you're in a different world. Something has changed on a fundamental level. And this is what is currently happening. Again, we have the beginnings of Newspeak. It is not fully rolled out, just like in 1984. But as it does become fully rolled out, and the purpose, the meaning of Newspeak becomes materialized, this has a huge impact. So if you go back to the idea of the natural order, one of the principles is meaning. And the meaning of Newspeak, again, is to control thought and action and information. Well, you do that through controlling the information. And so this is what is happening in big tech. This is what is happening in Newspeak. And this is what is currently being rolled out. Now, as you move into another example here, you can see a similar progression could be applied to the prince and to the panopticon. If the strategies of the prince are evolved past an individual ruler, as Machiavelli applied them, and instead were implemented by an entire system of control or a whole social engineering scheme, this would fit the full-blown technocracy very well. And this is more what is happening. Machiavellian strategies are being employed by these non-entity entities. So if you remember the Ven Armani interview, we talked about how a corporation would have been viewed in ancient times as a god. It is this entity that does exist. You can see its effects. You can you can talk to it in a way, communicate it in a with it in a way. You can get things from it. You can give things to it, but it's not a person. A corporation isn't a person. And there is not one person you can go to that totally represents that corporation. The corporation is this that non-entity entity. It is a god in the view of the ancients, at least. And this is what's going on. The, the prince, the ruler, is no longer the one that is completely in control using these Machiavellian strategies. Now, corporations are doing this, and not just corporations. It gets beyond corporations. Big tech is an entity, and uh, again, describe it as you will, but it is a thing. You know what I mean when I say big tech. If I say big tech has an influence on our society, I think just about anyone would totally agree with me. They wouldn't say, oh, there's no such thing as big tech. Oh, who is big tech? Well, that's kind of the point, is that it does exist, but you can't pinpoint it. And it is this bigger system entity. And it is a thing, but it isn't a material thing. It's not like the prince where you have a ruler. You can't point to that specific ruler. So this is part of this shift that I talked about mainly in season two, a lot about how uh, this parallel with Reformation, how you went from the church being the main source of control and rule, so to say, and the nobles and the lords having these small little fiefdoms, to the church dividing, the nobles and lords consolidating greatly, and them creating these nation-state systems where they were now the ones that have the majority of the control in their area, and the church was this smaller thing, more decentralized. And I compared that to today with the state, where you have the state that is currently 
the one that dominates, that rules, that is in control. And this is from the Reformation time period, the nation state. This is what it has become. And so what is happening now is the nation state is in full control and corporations, the corporate world, uh, this is the area where you have these segmented regions that are under control, these little fiefdoms, these little markets, and uh, this is the corporate world. Now, what is happening currently is that the state is becoming more and more broken up, more and more decentralized over various controversies. And during the Reformation, it was theology. In today's world, it's politics. Politics is the old theology. That's the comparison there. And so this is all happening through the technological revolution of the internet, just like the technological revolution of the printing press and everything that came with that. And so what is happening is as the state breaks up, as this more material technocracy starts to become more decentralized, starts to seed ground to something else, it starts to create a vacuum, well, what comes in? It's something from the corporate world. It's these corporate entities, these system entities, something like a big tech. And they will come in and very gladly consolidate, take up a lot of this power and this rule. And that's when you have this technocratic system become more dominant. And this is coming out of the corporate world, creating this new system, this new entity. And that is the full evolution, as I am portraying it at least, of the technocracy. And the state doesn't go away. The church didn't go away. It's just more broken up, and it doesn't run everything anymore. It has power, a lot of power, and has a lot of people that are dedicated to it, yes, but it is playing a different role as far as a macro view of society is concerned. And that's what's happening. So with Machiavelli's The Prince, the way that the prince should rule and the things that he talks about and the things that I discussed in that episode a few episodes ago, those things are no longer being done by a president or by a dictator or even by a parliament or a council. These things are now being applied by big tech, by Jeff Bezos, by uh, Google, by these types of entities. They are now applying Machiavellian principles to how they influence society, how they influence their markets, their consumers, which is society. It's the individuals in society. Something like the military-industrial complex would be another example of this. Or you could look at Big Pharma. That's a great example that is currently in existence. And you do see some consolidation happening there and them starting to gain more and more influence and them using a more Machiavellian strategy where we view them as being this positive thing and they're here to help humanity and create these drugs that will save the world and we count on them, we rely on them. They're handing out these uh, perks and these benefits little bits at a time and we're becoming more and more reliant and more and more hopeful and all of these things. Even when we know that, uh, for example, Pfizer has the largest fine of any corporation in history against them, but yet we trust what they say now and uh, every every medication that has been recalled was first FDA approved. So these corporations that created all of these things that created cancer and killed people, things of this nature that happened over and over and over again over the past few decades, they are still doing the same things. And yet now uh, they are viewed largely by society as a totally different 
thing, which it just doesn't make any sense to me, but that's what's happening. And it's because they are applying this Machiavellian approach, and it is very effective. And so this is what's going on. You also have the idea of a social engineering scheme. So I said that Machiavellian methods and strategies are being implemented by either a an entire system of control or a social engineering scheme. Technocracy is a mix of both, so to say, but we haven't fully gotten there yet. But as far as systems are concerned, that's where I'm talking about the, the idea of big tech and big pharma and uh, military industrial complex. These are, these are entities, system entities, so to say. But you also have this idea of social engineering and social engineering schemes. This is the idea of the Church of Woke, something like this, or transhumanism. These are things that, at their core, are social engineering. That's what they are. It's not even social engineering. Well, it's not only social engineering. It's also human engineering, which gets even darker. But these are things that are also implementing Machiavellian strategies. You look at the Church of Woke and how they are, uh, let's say, quote, fighting this war, this culture war. They are doing it in a very Machiavellian way. They are applying his strategies, again, very effectively, and it is working uh, because it's effective. And so uh, this is getting applied by more than just a ruler, than just a state. And this is, again, talking about bridging this gap between the old, more material version of technocratic systems to something new. Now, you could also do the same thing with the concepts of the panopticon. If one were to take the concepts of the panopticon to an expanded level, similar to some of Foucault's work, and apply them to social engineering at a mass scale, then the watchers become anyone loyal to the system. All who live for the benefit of the social body, a true self-regulating citizenry without any actual police or laws or visible government necessary on any significant level because of this system that has been created. And now, whereas in the Panopticon, it was a physical building, and he could apply that to multiple buildings, but it was an architectural design. That was the core of what it was. But now, this is not architectural. This is not about a building. This is not about a physical place. This is about society. This is about the social body as a whole. And so these strategies and methods, similar to Machiavellian strategies, they're getting applied to everything. It's not just the state that's setting up this physical surveillance grid, uh, which was already an expansion of the idea of just buildings and small areas. It, it was more encompassing. But now we're going even beyond that. We're getting into people's thoughts. We're getting into predicting behavior. We're getting into being able to get a more detailed view of individuals on a very mass scale. The state could not do that. The surveillance grid could not do that. Big tech can do that and does do that. And as these things start to take place, you get this self-censorship, you get people ratting on each other like the Stasi, which you had in the early COVID regime, where people would rat out their even their friends, their loved ones for breaking a curfew law or the not wearing a mask in a store. Oh, no, it wasn't the state that would come in. A police officer, you know, uh, pointed at a person, you must wear your mask. Like, that's in general not 
what was going on, although that did happen. And in some places, uh, that happened a lot and was a little crazy. But at least in most places, I can speak for America in the Southeast, at least. It, that's not what was going on. It was the other patrons of the store. It was sometimes the employees of the store. It was the citizenry regulating itself because it, that was the system. Those are the rules. This is how things work. And so, therefore, you should do them. You shouldn't be an outlier. You should be part of this order, part of the system, part of the social body. And if you're not, then you're against the social body. You're against the system. You are a criminal, probably. You're probably very immoral, and you probably don't care anything about anyone else. You you actually want to hurt other people, and you're a horrible person. And so, therefore, I should do what I can to protect me and everybody else and my family and those around me and even these innocent people in the store with me. I need to protect all of us by uh, totally getting on to you and policing you and using force, if necessary, against you because of who you are and what you're doing. And so uh, this is the idea where the watchers are no longer the state with security cameras and facial recognition, although that still happens and that's part of it. But the watchers now become the social body itself. The watchers become the individuals of the social body that are propagated by and are influenced by the system as a whole, the system of the social body through a social engineering scheme. And you can go all the way back uh, through all of these different examples. But all of this to say that if you take all three of these works, 1984, The Prince, and the Panopticon writings, to the next level and their logical evolution, you would get the next level and the further evolution of the technocratic system. This is how it works. And so uh, that's what I'm trying to explain about the current technocracy, about a material technocracy, is that the natural evolution of this, the logical conclusion, what happens next, just from a just natural standpoint that X leads to Y, which leads to Z, because that's just the way it is. That's the alphabet. It's one, then the other, then the other. That's two plus two equals four. And no matter how many times they say two plus two equals five, which happens over and over again, I've actually used that hashtag a decent bit on Twitter when I see these stories that are just so ridiculous. It'll, it'll say one thing, which has a very clear meaning, and then their conclusion from that one thing is the opposite of what the meaning of the thing was. And so, again, it's this idea from 1984 where they convince people that two plus two equals five. And they truly believe that because they were told. And yet it obviously is not truth. And that's not the way that it is. But getting back to, uh, I guess, kind of the point here, the logical evolution of the current version of technocracy, this technocratic spin on governance that had been started to be employed by the state that is now meshed between the state and the corporate world, uh, the logical evolution is that gets taken over by big tech, the corporate world, by some uh, more... I guess, uh, less political, less governmental technocracy, some technocratic system that is beyond the state, that is separate from the state. Just like with the Reformation, you had uh, this 
these nobles, this noble class, these lords, they were the ones that were all split up, but then they used the excuse of theology, even though at times you had Catholics fighting on the side of Protestants and vice versa. Uh, But yeah, they would just use the excuse that, oh, we're fighting for God and for our beliefs. And no, you're not. And they weren't. And the rulers even sometimes admitted that they were fighting to gain land, to gain power, to gain influence, and uh, very Machiavellian. And uh, it was very successful, at least for some of them. That's the point of consolidation, is that one is successful and 10 are not successful, but that one is very successful. And then that happens multiple times. And then you have a few nation states instead of hundreds of fiefdoms. And again, that's what's going on today, where you have this evolution, and you have big tech and the corporate world that is consolidating, and in doing so is gaining more power, and is implementing and manifesting this next level of the evolution of this concept of technocracy. And so in the next episode, and in the following episodes, I'm going to get more into what this next version of technocracy is. So that's what's coming up next. I've got the examples of Plato's Republic, of Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, and the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. If you're not familiar with those, just like the others, I highly, highly recommend that you read them or you listen to them as an audiobook. You do something because they are very valuable for a source of information and getting concepts and these types of things. But again, I will go over the pertinent information from each one of these as it pertains to this idea of technocracy and talk about this this next phase that I believe we're headed into it's different. And uh, these do give a really good example of what they are and how we can think about them. Since that pretty much covers everything for this episode, uh, let me talk just a little bit about agorism and about some things that are going on with people and groups that I know that do relate to these concepts and ideas. So I've shared before that there is a local agorist group and it does exist in my area, and I know people in it, these types of things. Uh, But there is this clear difference between a decentralized agorist group, so to say, and a, let's say, political party like the Libertarian Party. This is something that can be viewed in a similar way as what I've been talking about, about the material versus the more immaterial, the arborescent versus the rhizomatic. And I I did do an episode where I talked about kind of the differences in strategy and how those apply to these different things. But uh, to talk about what's working and what I have seen be very successful in my area, hopefully this gives other people ideas. And it is this example of applying something more similar to a rhizomatic approach to this more immaterial version of the what I've been talking about, the technocracy. But this is what I believe is the more natural version of society, a more natural, uh, natural order oriented version of how people organize and how people operate and how people produce and interact, these types of things. So with the Agorist group that I'm familiar with, there is no set 
hierarchical structure, so to say. There's a person that started the group, and they just kind of naturally have this leadership position, but it's not that they can just dictate anything they want and everybody's going to do what they say. And it's not that other people can't have ideas and do their own things. When something is proposed and there are ideas and things that will be pursued, those are very loosely organized, but basically whoever's interested pursues them. And that's kind of just the way it works. There are some things that I'm interested in that I'll pursue and that maybe I have skills for. And there are some things that I'm not. But if someone else wants to do it, then go for it. And this is a much more a decentralized approach to how to operate. And so you can look at this from a very uh, basic level, so to say, of basically a group of like-minded individuals. They are getting to know each other. They are building relationships. They are networking. They're doing these things. And it's all related to, let's say, the counter-economy. It's all related to being more self-sufficient in the sense of being less reliant on the system. And this is something that is very good, that is very effective. And this is something that works. So what I would highly encourage you to do is to join a group like this. And if one does not exist in your area, then you should start one. And if you need some help or encouragement or want to see what this is like, then feel free to email me and I can get you into at least a portion of the Agoras group that I know of. It has people from the all over the Southeast in it, and there is a more macro set of channels for the general interested public, so to say, and uh, private sections for the core group itself. And so I can get you in on that public side if you are interested, and that might be something that could help you with some ideas and some organization and that type of thing. But that's something I would highly recommend. And that's one thing. And the other thing that would be very effective would be to start actually building out this parallel system, to start building out a more uh, natural order-oriented, decentralized version of the social body, so to say. The social body, as it is being engineered by the technocracy, is something that is totally against the natural order. It's against the natural way that people should be, that people should function together. We want to do something different. And so, number one, that means we need to get to know each other. That means we need to meet other people. That means we need to network. We need to do these things. There is that aspect. At the same time, we need to actually be producing things. We need to actually be trading with one another, be growing our own food, be uh, learning about things like technology, cryptocurrency, 3D printing. There are lots of different things that can give us tools to achieve these things. But it is not just something that's cool and interesting, which is how it's often pursued, even by you know, me and people I know and people in these types of movements, libertarianism and agorism, these types of things. Uh, th- most of them would say that these are good things. These are cool things. They uh, might have some participation in them. But if you think about it, if you really want some resilience from the system to any great degree, if you really want to 
pull away your reliance to a major degree, then you've got to really get some concrete steps in place on this side of the parallel society. There's just no other way around it because if you don't produce a good bit of your food, then you are reliant on the system. And the way around that, I, I will admit here, is that you buy the majority of your food from the farmer's market, from local farmers, from other folks that you know that are like-minded with gardens, these types of things. You can support that way. The catch, though, is that if that's the route you go, the reason you can do that is because you have the money to do that. And at least for most people, the way that you get that money and the requirement that comes with having enough money to completely source everything, or not even completely, say 75%, source all your things locally, in order to do that, that makes you very reliant on your job, which for most people is related to the state or mega corporations, the corporate world. And so are you really being very... Uh, resilient and drawing away your reliance on the system, eh, it could be argued, uh, but it, it's tough. It's a really hard position to be in and one that I don't really have any real answer for because realistically, all of us do have needs. We all have uh, at least not all of us, but most of us have either a family or people that count on us or people that we support. And we can't necessarily just quit our jobs and go homestead somewhere. And I would not say that that's necessarily a good thing for everyone to do. Maybe for some people, but not everyone. But what I am saying is that we all should be implementing some material steps for producing our own things, for uh, buying from each other, for setting up this parallel society, drawing your kids out from the public education system, these types of things. We do need to be making material steps in these ways. It's not just about learning about them. It's not just about how they're really neat ideas. It's about actually doing them because if we're not, then we're not building out this parallel society. And that's kind of the whole point of agorism is the counter economy. It's the parallel society. It's building out something different so that we don't have to rely on the state or the corporate world because otherwise you do because you don't have another alternative. And again, the only um, exclusion there would be like a totally self-sufficient family that goes and lives off grid or intentional community, say the Amish, something like that. Yes, that is possible. But for most of us, most of us would say that we want to be involved with a larger community. We want to be tied in with the world writ large. We want to help others. We want to educate others in our community. We want to spread these ideas and these types of things. And so in order to do so, we have to be in the world, but we don't necessarily want to be of the world and tied into the world to that degree. We don't want to be yoked together with the world in a way that we can't break away from easily. And so I would just encourage people to just think about some material steps that you can take to get closer to that side of things. 
something material. Again, not just learning or reading or talking about something, but actually doing something. Even if it's just meeting with other like-minded people in a physical setting, that is doing something. But ideally beyond that, uh, growing something, making a product, I don't know. There are so many different things, and I've talked about so many different things on this show. I know you have different ideas, each one of you. So I would just encourage you to think about what you can do to take that next step to material materially help to build out something different, something better. And that's where I will leave it. So I will wrap up by saying thank you very much. I really do appreciate all of you listeners, all the supporters. Thank you, especially those that give money to the show to support the show. An especially great thank you to you. And for those that are just listeners, I appreciate you listening. I am glad that you enjoy the show. I hope that you do reach out to me with any feedback, any questions that you have, anything of that nature. I am always available. That would be at rfoundations at protonmail.com. If you're on Twitter, you can follow me at foundationspc. And if you're interested in the website, that would be rfoundations.podbean.com. All of these should be in the show notes. And yeah, feel free to check them all out to uh, get involved. And I guess I'm out of here. Peace. This has been Our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye.